So this morning in worship, we're going to focus on Jesus and his sonship and lordship. So reading, uh, I'm going to read about four or five passages of scripture that focus on this, and hopefully these will encourage you this morning about who, we, who it is that we worship. Hebrews 1, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. Turn to Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. Speaking of Jesus, it says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, in heaven making peace by the blood of his cross. Now turn to Isaiah 61. We're going to read verses 1 through 3 of Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Keep your uh, hand in Isaiah 61 and turn over to John chapter 1.
starting in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now turn to Isaiah 63. Who is this who comes from Eden in crimsoned garments from Basra? He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we think through the truths of these passages of Scripture that um, so carefully identify Jesus Christ as the, the Savior, the Creator, the one who sustains all things that He created, the one who uh, had all these things made for His glory. And Lord, we recognize that in these passages, You also have attributed glory to Jesus Christ. And You have given us Jesus as the Word, the Word that has made flesh, and that the Word that has brought truth to us that we might know You. And Lord, especially as I consider Isaiah 63, that Jesus Christ is mighty to save. He is worthy of our worship. Lord, we, we recognize that we are sinful men, sinful people, Lord, who are in desperate need of a Savior. And Lord, in the perfect time, the fullness of time, according to Ephesians 1, you sent Jesus to, to become uh, that Savior in the flesh, the one who would redeem mankind. And this morning, we celebrate your perfect plan. We celebrate uh, how Christ lived in, in holiness and righteousness and was that perfect sacrifice. And today, Lord, as we think through uh, all of our needs, not just the the, the spiritual needs, but also the physical needs, Lord, we recognize that Jesus is the giver of all good things, and he's the one who sustains us. And so, Father, as we uh, worship you today, we know that you are the great physician. For those that we've mentioned this morning that need healing, that need aspects of your hope to be infused in their lives, Lord, we surrender them to you, we submit them to you, and we ask that you would, according to your will, work in their lives to bring uh, grace and mercy and favor. Father, today, as we journey through uh, Matthew, the gospel of Matthew, and consider uh, Jesus' encounter with the Pharisees uh, over the healing of a, a demon-possessed man, I pray that you give us insight into the, the truth of Scripture. And Lord, again, it would help us to understand the uh, authority of Jesus, that he is your uh, representation, your perfect representation of your glory and your power. So, Father, uh, may your spirit today 
Speak to us clearly as we uh, open the word and as we consider its truths. We worship you, Jesus, because you are worthy of worship. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. Well, we're going to continue in Matthew 12. And uh, I'm excited about this passage, especially coming out of last week's message where we considered Jesus being confronted by the Pharisees uh, on the Sabbath day as he had done some healing. Uh, we, we showed or saw last week how Matthew indicated that Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. And today we're going to explore that topic a little bit further and maybe a little different uh, angle on this. Um, so I want us to, to think through uh, this message with care. And one of the things that has greatly impacted my thought process as I've considered this is the, the manner in which the Pharisees continued to uh, angle their attacks on Jesus. Uh, they, they continue to, to try to um, work these angles in such a way that Jesus couldn't escape. And, and oftentimes they were very confrontational and other times they were also very subtle. And uh, especially this week, I, I've thought about the, the way that they've angled this attack on Jesus. And I think that this is uh, an angle uh, and a method that, that people still use to this day. And, and that is an angle that addresses uh, a subtle uh, attack on Jesus with bad logic. Uh, where they don't understand the truth and they become very critical. And when I say they don't understand the truth, they're not looking at the, the truth of Scripture and the, the truth of Jesus' message. And so they, they get hints and aspects of things, but, but uh, in that they don't rightly look at the truth of what Jesus has uh, done and taught. I've got something wobbling in front of me. I'm laying down. Sorry about that distraction. Um, so let's read Matthew chapter 12, and we're going to begin in verses 22 through 37. That's our text for this morning. So let's read that together. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it's only by Beelzebul, that the, the prince of demons, that this man cast out demons. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do you, your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Verse 33, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified, 
and by your words you will be condemned. So as we begin to look at the, the text and consider a couple of ideas that the, the Pharisees uh, charged Jesus with, I want to give you uh, this, this principle. The argument that the Pharisees used was one actually that was distracting and confusing. And what Jesus does is he actually points out the illogical nature of their accusations against him. Because what the Pharisees were doing is they were concluding that Jesus was actually casting out demons by the power of Beelzebub. Uh, Jesus, uh, what he did is he pointed out that this argument is actually not based on the principles of Scripture. It was an argument that was external to Scripture. They weren't bringing the truth of what the Scriptures had taught them and what they were supposed to be studying as students of the scriptures and the law. So they had trumped this argument up. So, so first of all, it was not based on the scripture itself. Second of all, it was fallacious. It, is, it simply didn't make sense. Um, how does it make sense that Satan would undo his work and that would be something that would actually enhance his work. So Jesus points out that this, this doesn't make any sense. Um, and so it, it's the third aspect is that they also, the Pharisees, they also ignored the divinity and glory of Jesus. And I think that's the probably the most important part of the, their failure, uh, that, that by ignoring the power, the divinity, and the glory of Jesus that he'd been operating with consistently up to this point, they were missing the whole point of, of who Jesus was and how the Holy Spirit was revealing these things to, to the uh, audience of Jesus and, and especially them. So um, what Jesus ultimately concludes, and we can see this, he, he says um, here in verse 28, but it is, if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So, so Jesus breaks down their argument and he points to this very simple fact. If, the, if your argument is full of fallacy, if it's, if it's missing the point, if it's done without looking at Scripture, all of those things must mean that this is actually done by the work of God, and that means that his kingdom is present with you. So Jesus is once again elevating himself as the authority and the fulfillment of all the prophecies of the Old Testament. We've seen that again and again throughout Matthew's Gospels, this concept of fulfill. He's, Matthew's employed the word himself, Jesus has employed the word, and he's pointing back to him being the fulfillment of all the prophecies and how he was the, the Messiah present in their age. So when um, I think that, and, and this is where I want to connect some, some dots real quickly, I mentioned that this argument or process by the Pharisees is often repeated even in our day and age. Uh, I think there are many people that we encounter that are adverse to Christianity, adverse to the faith, that, that are argumentative about our faith. And what they do is they bring external arguments. They, they fail to recognize the truth of Scripture. Maybe they don't know it. Maybe they don't want to consider it. But they make their arguments based on something other than the truth of the Scriptures. And I, I think that's a key. And that doesn't mean that we can't use reason and logic. Certainly, we, we are to use those things. But we must do those consistently with the Scriptures. And for us as believers, what we need to do is we need to know the Word well so that we can go back and point these things out. Because uh, the importance of the Word is, is how we understand these things. So if I was to, to, to summarize what 
what this concept is amongst people that that are uh, opposed to Christians or opponents to Christ. It's, it's actually shows a rebelliousness in their hearts that they are not willing to surrender. And we need to be one patient with that rebelliousness. We need to, 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 I think, take them back to the word again and again, because the word is the power of the gospel unto salvation. So as I was reading, um, preparing this message, one of the things that, that I've been doing is also doing some research for, for doctoral work. And in my research, I came across this uh, article by John Piper in, in the Reform Journal. And, and this is actually something he wrote in 1976. And I found this very interesting and also very applicable to the, the message today. Uh, he was addressing uh, the idea of what grounds our faith or what is the foundation for the Christian faith. And in particular, uh, Piper went to, uh, did his doctoral work in Germany. So one of the things that he was doing was wrestling with German scholarship. And one of the men that he was addressing was Wolfhart Pannenberg. Uh, and Pannenberg was a German theologian who attempted to ground faith. And, and this is not totally bad, but it's inadequate in and of itself. What Pannenberg did, he tried to ground faith only in historical reasoning. So, so he was basically setting the scripture aside, Pannenberg was, setting the scripture aside and saying, here's how Christ is grounded in historical reasoning, that we can historically reason about his person, historically reason about his resurrection. And that, those things are compelling in enough uh, of themselves and enough to provide a reason for our faith. And I, I appreciated Piper's engagement with Pannenberg's thoughts, because Piper said, yes, he's not totally wrong in, in the, the importance of historical reasoning, but Piper emphasized that that is not enough. And one of the things that Piper did was he went back to one of his heroes in the faith of Jonathan Edwards. And as he quoted Edwards, it, it drove me to some of the works of Edwards myself, and I, I, just, I just decided I wanted to read those and uh, see what he had to say. So I want to summarize a couple of things that Edwards said and, and then uh, give you a couple of principles. So first of all, what Edwards says, we must come to an understanding of the things of God by the, the as how God uses the Holy Spirit and how the Holy Spirit utilizes the gospel truth to convince us of the message of the gospel. See, genuine understanding of the gospel doesn't come about by anything other than the word itself. So the Holy Spirit always amplifies the Word of God. Uh, let me illustrate that with a couple of biblical um, illustrations or examples is a better word. Uh, do you remember what Peter struggled with? Peter struggled with a denial of Christ. But at points, Peter also got it really right. In Matthew chapter 16, we have this account where Jesus asked, who do people say I am? And, and the, the disciples responded, and then he turned to them and he says, who do you say that I am? And Peter replied this, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And listen to how Jesus answered uh, them, uh, Peter and the disciples there. He said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Now here's the key, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father 
who is in heaven. So, so what Jesus is establishing is the, the truth of the gospel is not found by external means. It's found by the, the Holy Spirit through the work uh, uh, that he does as the Father has commissioned him to take the truth of Scripture and reveal those things to us. Furthermore, listen to this passage in 1 Corinthians 2, verses 9 through 11, where Paul echoes the same idea. He says, But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagine what God has prepared for those who love him. These things that God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who, knew, who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. So, so here's the point. The Pharisees were looking at external means. They were looking at outside reason, outside logic. But what Jesus was emphasizing was that the, the gospel truths are only discovered as the Holy Spirit reveals those things to us through the tr truth of Scripture. So Jonathan Edwards further emphasized this idea. He says this, and I want you to hear this quote. I think it's great. A view of this... Uh, oh, and let me, let me go back. So when we think about the idea of what the, the Holy Spirit reveals and the truth of Scripture... It's not just about simple truths, okay, and, and, or even just profound truths. All of it really points to the divine person of Jesus and his glory. Now, now, let me say that again. It's not just about truth. It's not just about principles of truth. All that the Holy Spirit wants to reveal to us is about the divine person of Jesus Christ and his glory. So now I want you to go back real quickly and think about the things that I emphasized in the, the scriptures that we read for our worship time this morning. There was an intentionality on my part that we would hone in and focus on the person of Jesus and his glory and his divinity and who he is as the author of creation and how he's the one who all things were created for him and sustained by him. And he is the one who is mighty to save. And as we consider all those things, see those point to his divinity and his glory and his difference as the one who our heavenly father sent, who is different from the angels, different from everyone else. He is to be exalted. So now listen to what Edwards uh, says to emphasize this idea about the divinity and glory of Christ. He says, a view of this divine glory directly convinces the mind of the divinity of these things, as the glory is in itself a direct, clear, and all-conquering evidence of it, especially when clearly discovered, or when the supernatural sense is given in a good degree. He that has his judgment thus directly convinced and assured of the divinity of gospel truths by a clear view of their divine glory, has a reasonable conviction. So what I love about what Edwards is saying is, when we look at the internal things of Scripture, and the Holy Spirit uses those things to reveal the divine glory and person of Jesus Christ, that's when a conviction takes hold of us that is undeniable, that, that transforms us with passion and zeal and joy and enthusiasm. And the list of, of adjectives could be go on forever about the positive things that we experience because of Christ. And so it's not something that we can just shelf and say, okay, well, we don't really react to. When the Holy Spirit is uh, revealing those things to us, we can't help but be transformed. And, and so when you think about 
the, the context of what we're looking at in this passage. Here, Jesus has healed this demon-possessed man. The Pharisees, they come in and they critique him and they criticize him and they throw this irrational, illogical uh, argument against Jesus because they've not encountered the true glory and divinity of Christ in the right way. And so they're holding Jesus at bay. And the truth is their hearts are hardened and, and they're becoming callous to, to Christ. And even in last week's text, we saw that they sought a way to destroy him so that they were being so polarized against Christ that they were approaching things in the wrong way. And Jesus confronts them. So that's what I want us to look at next. How does Jesus respond to the Pharisees in this? Not just teaching truth, but he begins to correct them. And I think this is a key. So first of all, he responds by uh, employing correct logic. Let's look at verses 25 through 32. It says, knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, it is, on, it is only by Beelzebul that the prince of darkness, uh, that this man cast out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, I'm sorry, I lost my place. Verse 25, knowing their thoughts, he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste and no city or house divided against itself will stand. So, so Jesus is saying, look, it doesn't make sense for Satan to divide his kingdom. That's, that's irrational. And then he says, look, in verse 26, he says this, and if Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And he goes on, and if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. So here he, he destroys their argument with logic, and then he gives them this uh, answer according to their own practices. Now, if you recall, in Acts 19, there's this interesting account where there are seven sons of a Pharisee um, named Sceva, that actually go and they begin to cast out demons uh, and they are, have recognized that the followers of Jesus are able to do this. And so they begin to uh, try to employ the name of Christ themselves. And so what happens, is, or the name of Jesus themselves, and what happens is, is they're trying to exercise this demon, they, they employ Jesus' name and the demon looks at the, the seven sons of Sceva and he says, I know these people and I know Jesus, but I don't know who you are and you have no authority. And the demon literally jumps them, tear, beats them up, tears their clothes, and they run out afraid. So, so what we have there is an illustration of how the Pharisees and their sons uh, were actually employing certain techniques uh, to, to try to exercise demons. And so Jesus is, is calling out the Pharisees saying, look, your sons are trying to do these very things. But if, if they're not doing it by the right means, but they're, they're still at some kind of level, maybe having success, what makes you think that I don't have more authority? So Jesus is, is taking their own practices and, and holding up a mirror and saying, you're, you're inaccurate. You're, it's inappropriate how you're arguing these things. I am the one who has greater authority than even your sons. And if you're not challenging them and their practices, why would you ever be challenging me? And so that's why Jesus then corrects the Pharisees about his authority. And he does that with this interesting illustration. So look at verse 29. Jesus says, or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his good unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. So, so here's the illustration that Jesus employs about the strong man. He's equating the strong man to Satan. 
that, that he is the one who has some kind of authority, that he is an intimidating character, but he's also saying that he is the one who is able to go in and bind the strong man, that Jesus has the ability, the authority, and the strength, if you will, to bind that strong man and to overcome him. Therefore, the Pharisees are, are uh, uh, unable to recognize the truth and authority of Jesus. So what is Jesus ultimately saying? He's ultimately saying that he is the one who has the power and glory of God, and that is manifested in him clearly. So what are the implications of all this? Um, I think, first of all, what we ought to recognize is that God alone knows a person's heart. Um, We see Jesus indicate that as he knew the thoughts of the Pharisees. Uh, at the, the onset, that he wasn't in within hearing uh, distance of them. He just sensed and knew that they were argumentative with him. Um, second of all, I think we, when we think about God knowing a person's heart, we need to follow through on what, what Jesus then takes, the, the, uh, how he turns the teaching and what he confronts the Pharisees and his audience with. And this is key because I think ultimately it's not just about the encounter and the the issues with the Pharisees and their logic or their argument. Ultimately, this is a Jesus extending a warning and a caution to everyone who's hearing him about how we respond to him rightly or properly according to faith. So let's look at at this. Jesus in verse 31, well, let's read 30 uh, 30 and following. He says, whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. So, so he's drawing this conclusion that we're, we're basically responsible for how we respond to Jesus. Are we with him and cooperating or are we scattering and against him? And then he gives this warning in verse 31. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Now, I want to clarify this again. As Jesus is talking about this issue of blasphemy, one of the things that we need to be careful ourselves of is judging other people's heart. For God alone knows the heart of of men. So we need to be careful in our judgment But what we also need to recognize is we need to be careful to evaluate our own selves and recognize uh, how we are rightly or wrongly responding to the truth of the gospel and what what Christ is. So we need to be concerned about this unforgivable sin that Jesus talks about. So I want to clarify what this concept is of the unforgivable sin. Now, if you were paying attention, and I'll go back and hit it really quickly, in verse 31... Uh, actually, verse 32, Jesus said, whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. So Jesus delineates a, uh, a response to him versus the Holy Spirit, and we need to understand why that is. The, the best way I can do that is to illustrate how some people responded to Christ that we have evidence of in the Scripture and testimony of. Um, First of all, we see here that Jesus is warning the Pharisees. They, they were the ones that were hardening their hearts against him. But there were others in Scripture that we see who responded to Jesus with denials. Peter was one. Uh, you recall that, that, G, that Peter denied Christ three times. 
and that Jesus had to walk through a restoration with Peter. Now, interestingly enough, Peter was forgiven. So there's an aspect of uh, what Jesus is indicating that when we deny him, that can actually be forgiven. But he says we are not to deny the work of the Spirit and his testimony. Now, why would that be? Why would that be considered the unforgivable sin? Well, I think, uh, and scholars that, that I've studied would agree with this, that the reason that the, the sin against the Holy Spirit is unforgivable because, is because he is the one who takes the Scripture and bears witness to the Scripture. And if we are denying the Holy Spirit and his work, and we're preventing ourselves from listening to his work, we're breaking down the ultimate means by which the, the, our Heavenly Father has, uh, through his divine works of providence, instituted the, the means of salvation. And so we can be forgiven of Christ when, when we've tr mistreated his name or are not considered him rightly. But if we're denying the work of the Holy Spirit, we're entering into a dangerous position where the Holy Spirit will stop his work and use of the scripture. And he'll, uh, we, we're, we're preventing him from really revealing the divine person and glory of Christ. So we've got to be cautious about that. So I, I was reading and came across this. I think this is a, a, a good quote. It's a little lengthy, but this is by William Hendrickson. Um, and it's interesting, several different uh, scholars had quoted this very passage. So I, I want to read this because I think it's so good. He says, uh, in, in terms of this hardening of our hearts towards the Holy Spirit, he says, for penitence, and he's referring to the Pharisees here, but I think it's a good uh, point for us to relate to our own lives. For penitence, they substitute hardening, for confession, plotting. Thus, by means of their own criminal and completely inexcusable callousness, they are dooming themselves. Their sin is unpardonable because they are unwilling to tread the path that leads to pardon. For thief, an adulterer, and a murderer, there's hope. The message of the gospel may cause him to cry out, Oh God, be merciful to me, the sinner. But when a man has become hardened, so that he has made up his mind not to pay any attention to the promptings of the Spirit, not even to listen to his pleading and warning voice. He has placed himself on the road that leads to perdition. He has sinned the sin unto death. I think that's a, a good point of warning for every one of us to, to make sure that people that we encounter and ourselves, that, that we are encouraging them to respond to the truth of the gospel and, and the work uh, of the Holy Spirit. So I, I want to take a, a quick minute to, to remind you of what Edwards emphasized, is that when we encounter the divinity of Christ, it happens because of the work of the Spirit. So that we, we must realize that when we look into the Word of God, the Spirit reveals the truth and it confronts our hearts and our, our sinfulness and it shows us who Christ is and who we are and we recognize that we need Christ desperately. And so the, the Spirit brings forth the truth and the light and we are convinced of the divinity and glory of Jesus. And that leads us to a couple key points. And I'll remind you of this through some scripture. It reminds us that when we encounter that truth, that we think that this, 
that Jesus is Lord. And the scriptures tell us that when we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and we believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. Because with the heart, one believes and is justified. And with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. And that's what I think Jesus is emphasizing. So look back at, at Matthew chapter 12, verse 33 and following. He says, either make the tree good and its fruit good or make the tree bad and its fruit bad for the tree is known by its fruit. See, see, when we respond to the truth, the, the word of God, we are seeing it bear fruit in our lives. And he confronts the Pharisees again in verse 34. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So when, what Romans 10, 9 and 10 is saying is when we recognize who Jesus is, we believe in our hearts that he is Lord, or he has been raised from the dead, and we confess with our mouths that he is Lord. Those two things line up, the heart and the mouth. And so that's what Jesus continues to, to reveal here. He says the good person, verse 35, the good person out of his good treasure being, brings forth good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. So he's drawing this contrast between the two. And he says then on ver in verse 36, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified. And by your words, you will be condemned. Jesus isn't saying that our words are actually what necessarily condemns us. He's saying they reveal what's happening in, in the depth of our hearts. And our confession shows the heart of, of transformation or hardening. And so what we've got to be careful of is listening to the hope of the gospel. So as he uh, shares this, I, I was um, started thinking about some other texts that, that reveal the power and the authority of the word. And Romans 1, 4 is one of those passages. I want us to, to turn there real quickly. We'll just begin in, in verse 1. Paul, servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So, so here in Romans 1, it's interesting. Paul's talking about Christ, but he says, remember, he's the one who's been pointed to through all of the Scriptures. Verse 3, concerning his son, the Scriptures point to him, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection, resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Here's the point of me directing us to that. Paul clearly says in Romans 1 that the Scriptures are what reveal Christ. And who Christ is, according to the Scripture, is the power of the Lord. It's, it says, he was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by resurrection from the dead. So declared to be the Son of God in power, and the Spirit is the one who has uh, made those things known, known to us. So what does that mean for us today? Well, I think it's a real simple message um, in one sense, but I think it's also very rich and confrontational at the same time. It means this. How are we responding to the truth of Scripture as the Holy Spirit reveals it to us, those truths, so that we recognize the divinity and glory of Christ and we, we respond to him as Lord? That there's a confession with our mouth that reflects a heart 
that recognizes his lordship as well because of his because of his resurrection from the dead that that establishes his authority and his glory above all of creation some of us would probably because uh, I remember at this point there in, in my own life I had never done that uh, I was 20 years old and I'd known truths about who Christ was but I never truly confessed him as Lord and recognize him as the one who was the, the Lord over my sin, that he died to pay the penalty for my sin and became cursed on the, the cross for my sin, bearing my guilt and shame. And it was as a 20 year old that I uh, got out of my bed one night needing to confess Jesus as Lord and I surrendered my life to him asking him to become my Lord and my Savior. So some of you may be sitting here under the sound of my voice today needing to do that for the first time in your life. Respond to the Holy Spirit. Soften your hearts today to the truth of the gospel. Recognize the divinity and glory of Christ in all that he's done on our behalf and surrender your, your life to him. For others of us, we recognize that we've done that already. But the truth is we can still set the word of God aside. We can uh, emphasize and, and lean into our own rationality and other things that are external in, in our lives rather than the authority of God's word. So maybe the, the lesson and, and point of conviction for us today is to come back and make sure that the authority of God's word is what we are constantly surrendering to um, in, in our lives. That we're not just, and, and in that, not just looking to the principles that the word of God offers, because that can be wisdom and it's good wisdom, but in that, it's really about the May, the, the, the way and manner in which we relate to Christ in his divinity and his glory. Um, I, I think Edwards is right. I think others that I'm reading right now are right. Uh, Piper, as he points this out, the foundation is not about histor historicity, though that's helpful. The foundation of our faith is simply about the glory and divinity of Christ. So I don't know where you are, what you're, what you're addressing in your life, how... Um, malleable and sensitive you are to the things of God. But I assure you of this, if you will study the word and you'll submit yourself to the spirit's teaching and his leadership, as the word of God takes more and more hold of your heart and you see the divinity and glory of, of Christ, your life will be transformed because there's no, nothing that's more pleasing, more edifying. Uh, there's not a, a point that our worship is more rightly grounded than in recognizing those truths. So I want to encourage you, for every one of us, we need to be people of the Word. We need to be surrendered rightly to the Spirit and His leadership, sensitive to what He wants to teach us as we study the Word of God. Let us be people of the Word. Now, I want to offer this uh, last piece uh, to anyone who is in that first group that I described uh, that may not have come to Christ, and, and you may be considering these things for the first time in your life. Uh, we can't do this like a counseling kind of thing in Facebook, but what we want to encourage you to do is on our website, thegrow431.com, we'd love for you to reach out to us and just fill out through the prayer request that you want more counseling. We'll follow up with you. Uh, because we want to make sure that you understand the gospel completely and that you have the opportunity to receive counsel about what it means to know Christ personally as your Savior. So I want us to take a, a, just a, a minute to pray this morning before we conclude our time together. So let's bow together. 
Heavenly Father, this morning, uh, even this week, I, I met with a friend and we, we got to, to pray together for just a couple minutes. And Lord, in that, uh, this overwhelming thought about the, the divinity, the glory of Christ has, has captured me in some new ways recently. And Lord, as I think through what this encounter with the Pharisees um, meant, Lord, over and over again, Jesus showed himself to be authority. In this passage, he demonstrates that he is the Lord of power. And Lord, in that, he is the God of glory, fully God and fully man. And he is worthy of our worship. So today, Heavenly Father, we pray that Jesus would be exalted in our lives. And we pray that we would be especially sensitive to the leadership of your spirit as you reveal the word of God, that every time we pick up the word, we would be uh, more and more richly uh, developed in our understanding of who Christ is, your perfect plan of salvation, Father, that we would submit ourselves to both Jesus as our Lord and to your will in our lives as we walk with you in our sanctification, as we walk with you to be a witness to others about the, the uh, work of Jesus as our Savior. For those around us, Lord, that we know have not confessed Jesus as Lord and Savior, we pray that we might be salt and light, that we would emphasize the grace and the mercy of Christ above all else, so that, Lord, as you are revealed, people are drawn to Jesus. Lord, we pray that it would be here in this life that they would bow their knees and surrender to you. And it would not be uh, only a, a moment where they've done it uh, after they've passed, Lord, um, because that would be too late. So, Lord, we pray that we would be bold in our witness. We pray that we would be bold to, to one another as well for prayer and accountability as we witness so, Father, we know that you want to accomplish good things in and through us. And we pray that we would be strong ministers of the gospel. And, Lord, again, I pray that we would be good thinkers, that we would have good rational arguments. But, Lord, more important than uh, history, more important than a testimony, Lord, the word of God is what uh, the Spirit uses. So let us be people of the word. Let us pursue that understanding of the word with passion, with zeal, with fervor, so that you work in us to use that word as we uh, take it to others to impact them as well. So Father, uh, today, again, I pray that, that we would experience the divine glory of Jesus Christ and that we would worship him as a result of it, that experience and you would be pleased with us. And there'll be a spiritual sacrifice of worship as we're renewed in our minds by that encounter with him. We pray these things in Jesus' name and for his sake and his glory. Amen. Well, I want to finally remind you again um, that we're going to be resuming services this week. So uh, men, hope to see you guys on Wednesday night at 630. Uh, students uh, and parents, remember that youth ministry will be back on campus this Wednesday night as well, starting at 630. And uh, we will be on campus next Sunday uh, gathering. So we hope to see everyone there. Uh, remember that it is the fifth Sunday. We'll be taking communion. So if you're not on campus, you may want to have some elements ready as we partake of the communion time 
so that you are prepared and can participate in that with us. Have a wonderful Sunday afternoon. Remember to, to reach out to someone this week and share the love and good news of Jesus Christ with them as you connect in communities and change lives. Have a great day.